Hello, friends. Hit Factory here. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And today, we are pleased to welcome movie lover, friend of the show, Jackson Boren to the podcast. Jackson, welcome to Hit Factory. Guys, thank you for having me on. This is an honor to be here talking to you guys. We're thrilled to have you, uh, and we're even more thrilled about the movie that you've selected for us today, uh, which is the 1996 disaster thriller, major blockbuster of that year, one of the highest grossing films of 1996, Twister, starring Bill Paxton, Helen Hunt, and a whole bunch of other people, like like all the people. people. Yeah. (laughs) All the people. <laughs> a murderer's row. It really is. It's it is a uh, prime bench of incredible character actors and performers. People who uh, are still performing today and knocking out of the park. Some people who we've sadly lost uh, in in uh, you know the time since. But uh, all of them operating at peak, just like goofball mode, having a great time. This is like I think underrepresented in the conversation of like great kind of hangout movies too. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of this that is just like these guys driving around, (laughs) hanging out at rest stops, shooting the shit, some like science jargon. Like obviously it's not what you're here for, but there are some really good kind of like hangout moments. They're like fleeing life threatening, you know, scenarios, but yeah, there's some hangout. Yeah. I've described it to to friends as sort of like a babishka doll of um, a movie where it's like a disaster movie inside a divorce movie inside of, inside of a hangout movie. For me, this movie evokes so much sort of like you know sensory kind of like memories of a particular time and place in my life when I was in childhood and adolescence watching this movie all the time on VHS. It has a very distinct sort of 90s feel to it. And a lot of these movies do, but for whatever reason, this one to me is very special. I think it's just because of how immersed I was in it as a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And I loved it. It was just exactly what I wanted to see. I liked the big special effects blockbusters. Um, I liked the kind of like goofiness of all the side characters. Philip Seymour Hoffman being, you know, Dusty was was uh, goals at that point in my life. I was like, man, that guy's so cool. Like, yeah. I, yeah. I want I want a little like gerbil like bottle to drink out <laughs> yeah. of in my in my car. Like, that's that's so sick. Yeah, I wanted the uh, that sort of neon Pendleton hoodie that he had, and yep. you know. yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, there's there's like a weird um, this the cynicism of Twitter. I think sometimes creates this nostalgia shame that's like, well, it's not just it's not good. It's just you loved it back then. And I think this is one of those movies where if no, if you revisit it now, there's still there's a lot of good stuff to take away from this movie. And it's not just the memories that we had. No, it it's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a good movie. It is. It is good. And I think, you know, folks, friends, listeners of Hit Factory know that we take a very measured approach when it comes to nostalgia. You know, there are obviously things we loved as kids that, as you said, Jackson, don't necessarily hold up. They they have some like, you know, charming qualities to them or they they still feel good because of the memories. Uh, but this one does have something kind of special to it. And it does still work miraculously. On paper, it's also just a film that like shouldn't have worked to begin with. I don't know 
what it is. It's like an inarticulable element of like the juice or the sauce, but whatever it is, Jan de Bont certainly has it when he's approaching action cinema. Uh, and of course, like all of the other people who are proximate to him and working w- alongside this director uh, are, are people who just constantly swing for the fences and always kind of clear, you know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. executive produced by Spielberg under his yeah. Amblin banner. Kathleen Kennedy is here in the works and, you know, mm-hmm. whatever your uh, emotions are around the, the new Star Wars output at Disney uh, for a long time, her name on something guaranteed a certain level of like quality and craftsmanship and a whole lot of money getting thrown at it. Yeah. Um, and Michael Crichton as one of the scribes of the screenplay when Crichton was like at the peak of his power. This is a handful of years after the success of Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Granted, he did not, you know, write the screenplay for that, but uh, it was like him and Grisham, and like basically, like in any particular weekend during this time period over the course of the early '90s, you were guaranteed to see some sort of adaptation of their work that just uh, made a, a shit ton of money. And I, I think you know it's funny when we talk about. The 90s. I love how you two volley between sort of these big, notable films of the decade and then the under the radar gems. I'm like looking at like Freeway or No Escape, those those kinds of that like pepper our memories of the era. Uh, but when I was going back and forth with Aaron about the titles that would be fun to discuss with you, uh, I just wanted to dive into something that, you know, for the first time, that was a big pop culture event. And that felt like this fit the bill. I was in that moment, I was envisioning this Venn diagram that was Helen Hunt, Michael Crichton, Van Halen, and how 90s is that? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, my memory of this film is that it was sort of a a ubiquitous phenomenon. Um, You know, but more so, I I think of it as, you know, as a 13-year-old boy, uh, this was tailored to me specifically um the the movie was advertised as from the creators of jurassic park and the director of speed so that's the easiest (laughs) easiest sell uh, on a movie in my life you had me there from day one um but in addition to that i was i was a big entertainment weekly kid so i was following the 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 trades as they came along Mm. with the production reports while my friends were digging in on uh, final fantasy 7 or something like that. I was yeah. just that weird kid. So that I was I was sold uh, day one on this for sure. Did you see it in theaters? Absolutely, yeah. I, I remember seeing this in theaters and it being like the the movie of the summer for me. Um, and and it's, you know to speak to that, there was also these markers that these sort of you had to be their criteria that would mark these big movies. So for for me, the one that I, I always come back to is uh, the MTV Movie Awards. And mm-hmm. those yeah. being sort of this, well, I mean, today they're, they're sort of a joke, but back then it was this still sort of like, not quite counterculture, but they just weren't the prestige awards uh, and they could still get all of the A-list actors to show up and they would do yep. these spoofs of the big films that summer or that year. And that would be sort of a minting of your film as this is the one to pay attention to, or these are the films you want to pay attention to. And that year uh, they had Ben Stiller and Janine Garofalo hosting the the show. And they did sort of a, a recreation of a, a few, a, a scene in, in Twister. And that just has sort of lived in my mind uh, for 30 years since. 
<laughs> I totally remember that. I also remember the Jurassic Park one too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or the what is it? Lost World? Lost World. Yeah. 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 I, I the ones I remember most vividly are definitely more from like the the early like two thousands. I, I remember the Jack Black one with Lord of the Rings. Oh and like the God. whole joke yeah. is that he like got drunk the night before and like pierced his penis with it. <laughs> yeah. And, like, <laughs> right. Um and then of course like the Justin Timberlake, Sean William Scott. Yeah, one the Matrix. The, the Matrix one with, with that great Will Ferrell bit as mm-hmm. the architect, which is super funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think people, you know, kind of forget and, and people who aren't kind of alive within this kind of media climate don't really realize just how sort of like mainstreamed a lot of the conversations of film production were at mm-hmm. a certain point. Right. Like we don't we don't have like a a proxy for this today or or anything that's even really kind of symmetrical to it, but like I recall too at you know my age of like watching uh, Entertainment Tonight, right? Like ET, and like in prime time on ABC or whatever that was, watching interviews with Steven Spielberg and Jan DeBont and Kathleen Kennedy about this movie and how they were making it. I remember having that little tidbit in my brain of like, oh yeah, the the sound team recorded uh, roller coasters and the sounds of like camels and and mm. tiger roars to like make the the tornado sounds i remember knowing that as a kid yeah. watching it and we don't have anything like that today you know they like the nerds like us who hang out on twitter and like talk about these movies all the time and share some of the trade stories and watch interviews and and special features on dvds and such we do um but there just used to be more of an apparatus to sort of share film criticism, film production, all of those things about Hollywood that were a little bit more fascinating and stuff that you could use to kind of like gin up excitement for movies like this. Well, there was also more material production happening. Yeah. Right. Like it wasn't just I I put this in a computer program like I, you know, there was like sound mixing and like practical effects and there was more um, it was more tactile. So mm-hmm. there was more to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. There's Definitely. only so much you can cover on the volume in a, in a behind the scenes <laughs> component. For totally. sure. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and now it's almost sort of like, you know, the the hidden quality of that and then the revelations that they, you know, did something a certain way are, are more interesting. I feel like uh, one of the big ones that was getting shared around was was a Spielberg production. And it was the fact that that. Uh, that scene with the the big storm in the Fablemans was shot on the volume, and it feels so like vivid and real. You know, like obviously they they put this car and Michelle Williams in it, you know, driving on the volume, but it but it feels really tactile. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me was more interesting. Finding out, oh, this wasn't done practically than than the alternative, which is like, oh, cool, these guys stood in a blue room and jumped off of a springboard, and that's that's what we we get, you know. Yeah. Um, for me at that time, I think the big sell for me, uh, was that it was, it was coming from Jan Debont because I was, mm-hmm. the big draw was speed. I'm not shy online. Uh, when I say speed is up there in like my top 10 of all time. So that may be, um, you know, on, on par with what, what is it like, you know, deep impact is, is a big one for you. 
Carly. Um, I don't know what they're, you know, that this is sort of like up there for me. And so uh, watching Twister for the first time as a 13 year old, I walk out of the theater and it was like, wow, Jan DeBont did this. I'm a, I am a fan for life. Um, this guy does speed. He does Twister. This guy can, cannot lose. I cannot wait to see the, the next 20 classics that he makes. And then that did not happen. No. <laughs> yeah. It didn't. Yeah. It's, his trajectory is interesting, right? Because I mean, like he's one of those those guys that came out of you know the the Dutch film industry. He was he was Verhoeven's guy for a very long time before yeah. Verhoeven went Hollywood, and you know all of these guys came over. Uh, and then yeah, I mean after Speed, you would think like, oh, this guy is going to do everything. Yeah, he w- he was the heir to McTiernan at that point. Yes, right, totally. Absolutely. And he even, I mean, he shot McTiernan's stuff, right? He did uh, mm-hmm. Hunt for Red October behind the camera um, and, and a bunch of other He did Die Hard? Too. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of a bummer that it like it never materialized into something that was like a more kind of industrious and, and yeah. bigger career behind the camera. I, some of that I think may have to do with the fact that it sounds like he was something of a, a kind of erratic director. Mm-hmm. I, I know that there was uh, a whole host of problems in the production, mm-hmm. many of them stemming from uh, his conflict with the camera crew that were first uh, on on set with him. I, I guess he at one point even got physical with one of the camera operating assistants and like kind of pushed him over when he like missed a mark, like in kind of a, a, a fit of rage. Uh, and so Don Burgess, who was the the original DP on this basically walked with yeah. all of the cat all the crew yeah took his whole crew and then on top of that then you have his replacement jack green comes in then gets hospitalized after this mechanical house that's supposed to collapse on cue uh activates while he's inside of it and oh then my god yep. and then debont has to take over for the remainder of the shoot so a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. was just you know a product of debont's insistence he he was a hard person to work with at times more so I think on this than with speed, but I am, I am sort of fascinated with the trajectory that his career took after this because he didn't want to do speed too. A lot of people don't realize that that was a contractual thing with Fox. Mm -hmm. And so he goes back into that and he, he has to pull that out of his ass to, you know, come up with something that will match the original. And there was so many like lightning in a bottle, uh, factors that made speed a hit in the first place that then he has to do that and then follow well, and that you can feel that he like wasn't his like his creative heart was not in it no no yeah and then and you could tell that i mean the script wasn't there keanu said the script was you know ridiculous how are we going to mm-hmm. follow speed up with this that's why he didn't come back and then debont has to follow that up with the haunting which was its own sort of disaster in a way. Yep. <laughs> um, and then and then finally, like, he does the Laura Croft sequel, which kind of chains him to this video game IP that has its own restrictions. And then that, he's just said, made him sort of fall out of love with filmmaking entirely. So it's, it's just sort of this sad um, downward turn that he took. And I really feel like Speed 2 broke him in a way. I mean, for all of his, you know, aggressiveness, like, the the preciseness which with which he shoots is so apparent in this film in particular because the the motion and the like 
the sort of angles he's operating at, like you don't, I think you can't really appreciate how much work and care and like planning goes into a lot of, a lot of what's on screen because it feels so effortless. But I was watching this movie and like, just like a gape at some of the shots because Mm -hmm. they're gorgeous Mm -hmm. and dynamic and like incredibly interesting and creative and like, propulsive and there's he has a kineticism to his direction and I think like I'm not like saying oh like hostile sets are necessary for great art making but like he did do some really incredible stuff on this movie yeah yeah and and that's and that's why I really think that you know he was a he was a talented director under the right circumstances. And I think that's mm-hmm. where, you know, some of the other films, they just didn't hit the same way because you had these missing pieces. Like we were talking about earlier, Aaron stated, you had all the right players involved in this film and then in Speed and in some of the subsequent titles, he just, he was on his own and just didn't have the same um, circle around him. Uh, I need to point out, like like you were saying, just how beautiful this movie was to look at. Just every time I rewatched it, I'm reminded that blockbusters don't really feel like this. You know, you said how no. tactile they are. Um, DeBont's, you know, helming this with these big uh, visually c- controlled shots swooping from the sky down into, you know, our, our storm chasers, you know, driving aclo- yep. across the plane. Things that just like, you're like, this. they were in Oklahoma. And, that, and that's the point is... I have to credit DeBont on insisting that Twister be sh- shot on location in Oklahoma instead of, I think it was like California or the UK. They were going to try to uh, yeah, match it was that. Be like a combination of the two of those, I think. And, and he was really insistent on the, the actual location serving as it itself. Yeah. And, and then, and then he quotes later in an interview I read where he said, this is the last great action movie not shot on a sta- soundstage. And to that, I say, yes, King go off. <laughs> I, Completely. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. Every time the camera went from one of those just like extreme wides, like aerial shots and swooped over a cornfield or a plane or part of the highway and just landed there like in motion right alongside the caravan as they're like conversing. It's incredible stuff, you know, and, and who better to helm something like this that's in kind of perpetual motion than the guy who made a movie that was literally about a vehicle that you couldn't stop, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's something to behold, and I and you know we're all talking about you know the cinematography here and and kind of the, the craftsmanship behind it. I imagine DeBont is someone really hard to work with <laughs> yeah. from from a cinematographer standpoint as oh, someone yeah. who has that kind of like visual acuity and and also like the language and like the the knowledge of of how to operate. Um, I do want to call out that that Jack N. Green is the cinematographer who took over for Burgess, um, who whose name we've already mentioned. But he, during this time period, uh, was Clint's guy. Um, I, I'm a huge Clint Eastwood fan. Uh, he did Bridges of Madison County the same year that he did this movie. Um, two vastly different <laughs> types of films. Um, but I... I have to imagine that that was a better fit, given just what we know about Clint and, and the pace at which he commands his set you know these kind of like one take and go sort of days that uh you know uh start five minutes early and and you know an hour before they're supposed to wrap you know all, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff that just seems like the pace that that debont wanted for this and you can feel that kineticism and that sort of energy in the movie so yeah. it, it does yield the results yeah and and 
the thing I saw moving from Speed to, to Twister is that in Speed, DeBont kind of mastered that staging of action. And then in Twister, he took that skill that he, he had built there and kind of brought in that he had to learn how to balance the digital effects with the practical. And, mm-hmm. and, and as the industry was segueing into this new era of everything being digital or, you know, kind of exploring the uh, uncanny valley. There is a mystery. Elusive. Unpredictable. Violent. It terrifies most scientists. But for a new breed, the challenge is saving lives. The research is deadly. The laboratory is nature itself. And potentially uh, could be a storm that has a wind in excess. hunt like feels like she was just like one of america's sweethearts people loved her after mad about you and Mm -hmm. was just an incredibly bankable star it was incredible to see her in this yeah it it surprised me to learn that the the studio actually pushed back a ton on helen hunt because she was mainly a television star before this Mm. she had done you know quite a few movies but nothing on this scale um but what what jan debont wanted was he wanted for his leads like real actors, he didn't he didn't necessarily need them to be the top of the A list. He wanted actors who, a, were willing to be very physical and really you know get into the stunt work and all of that, or at least some of the believable action stuff. Uh, but then also be able to pull off a lot of the dialogue stuff because, as we know, right. you know the the interplay between Helen Hunt and uh, Bill Paxton's characters was as important as the tornado, even though t- the tornado is essentially the star of the movie. So, so yeah, I mean, she had, she had the warmth, she had the intensity. I feel like Helen Hunt, you know, checked off all the boxes of the character even before, uh, before they had even started filming. She was there to, to fulfill the demands of the role. Um, I also find her and Paxton's casting interesting because they were, they were sort of the, um, they were both stepping up into the majors with Mm -hmm. this movie. Neither of them had had sort of headlined a movie at that point. Um, I felt like I felt like uh, with Hunt, you know, she said that Debont had had come to her and asked her to do this, and initially she didn't want to. And then I'll get into more Spielberg stuff later. But essentially, the tipping point was Spielberg said, "I want to take you to lunch," and then she said it was over from there. He was the one that convinced her to do it. <laughs> Well, and if you've seen any Mad About You, I mean, that show is like very quick, witty. And so she handles a a really great script like the one that we have in Twister really well because she can she can deliver that those sort of like the lines that like on paper might read a little like 
flat or like um, plastic. She just carries it all with such warmth, as you said, and like such realness. And she adds a sort of like texture in the way that she'll pause or look or she just is like a very um she's just a very like realized presence on screen it feels like when you're with her you're in good hands Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I felt like in this they were trying to come up with something where you know she had a little bit of a softer edge but she could still pull off that look that sort of Ellen Ripley of like you know, right. I'll, I'll do it myself sort yep. of thing. Totally. Yeah. Cause you have to believe that she's, she's not just one of the boys. She's like the head of them. Yeah. She's the craziest one yeah. as Melissa says um, <laughs> yeah. in the right. film. And yeah. she's in like a wife beater tank and like cargo pants the whole time. Yeah. Right. And she's like <laughs> smoking hot, but also like incredibly capable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's she's a classic Michael Crichton science jock. Yes. And this this combination of, you know, the determination and humor and everything. And when you see it, you know, in motion, Hunt Hunt was the perfect person for it. So I yeah, I think that she nailed it. Her alongside Paxton, like the chemistry is obviously there. They're both believable, as you Mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, like Jan DeBont wanting people who were formidable actors who could like live in the part and be and be believable, but you know, and, and looked real. In it, it yeah. I, I was reading too that uh, there was a briefly a, a moment where maybe Tom Hanks was supposed to play uh, the, the lead in this. Yeah, and I have trouble seeing it. Frankly, I see Carly kind of like tilting her head at it. It just it doesn't eh. it doesn't feel right to me. No. no, yeah. Fortunately, I don't think he was all that interested in it either. And then uh, Laura Dern was the other one that I heard was briefly kind of considered or, or in talks for yeah. for Helen Hunt's role. Her, I think, may have worked. She's she's got a similar kind of thing. Obviously, she plays Ellie Sattler in Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. a similar sort of vibe with like the cargos and the tank top sort of thing going on. Um, but yeah, Helen Hunt just has this this believability to her and kind of like a, a tactility and energy that I think it makes that character really sing. The interesting thing about this and its other ties, there's just a lot of things that tied this to Jurassic Park in that it, as sort of like a, a sister film in a way. Um, I was looking at Spielberg's, you know, the, the, the way that he was able to pull this together and, and a reflection of Spielberg's power in the industry at the time. This, this movie was a partnership between Warner Brothers and Universal um, as sort of, I guess, gelled or, or, or created by Amblin through Spielberg in that they were, okay, they were going to make this movie together and, Warner Brothers was going to get the North American rights and then Universal was going to get the international rights and they were going to they were going to release it. That that felt like something that only Spielberg could do at the time. And mm-hmm. so it's really it's really interesting that he did that but then decided, "Okay, I'm going to step back and just take the executive producing role and let DeBont take this over." Um, because it still feels like there's these things that are very similar to, to to Spielberg's approach to Jurassic Park. So you have like the less conventional casting of the leads. I think, you know, it's easy for us retrospectively to look at at uh, Paxton and Hunt and say they're perfect. But I, I wonder if at the time, you know, like the studio was pushing back, they said, ah, I don't know if these are the safest choices for a 
a big blockbuster film like this. So I can kind of see where they were coming from there. Um, and then additionally, sort of the heavy emphasis on practical effects that that DeBont did in, in how we look at you know, Jurassic Park. They, they went digital and we talk about all, all the CGI uh, accomplishments and, and breakthroughs that that film had. But there, it was really a, a back and forth of practical and digital, which I, I think was here in, in Twister as well. So, um, and then, and then, lastly, obviously, there's the Michael Crichton of it all, mm-hmm. and creating these characters that are kind of one dimensional, but in a way that you have these primary colors that sort of paint the picture, and that you you know you need to keep the the movie rolling. I don't know. Did you guys see that sort of? comparison to Jurassic Park as well with the characters that weren't necessarily as deep but they didn't need to be yeah absolutely the there are like stakes beyond the like main threat Mm -hmm. right um which is something that I think Jurassic Park really does well too it's not just about like the dinosaurs there are all of these other like tangential emotional and like political threads that come out of it and this movie is kind of even exploring that too with like another tie to um Jurassic Park sort of like corporatization of mm-hmm. like uh you know storm chasing right. I guess mm-hmm. the, the big market of of storm chasing right all those famous like you know like uh moneyed up storm chasers like Carrie Ell's character in here uh, but yeah, I mean, it's with, with like logos. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the the team X blades of it all. I, I think yeah. I said to you when we were watching it, but it, it I mean, this was a, a huge thing in the 90s, right? Not just like the corporate sellout thing, but also in this movie in Jurassic Park, this kind of Crichton thread that is always like people who try to think first about the kind of like capitalist constructs that can monetize and benefit them that try to bend nature to their will. Right. And, and, you know, if you don't have a, a sort of reasonable level of fear and apprehension understanding of what you're dealing with, it's going to bite your face off or throw a piece of rebar through your head. There's like the hubris of like the corporate approach. And then there's like reverence that comes with someone who's like, you know, a boutique storm chaser. Right. Right. Well, it's about like the, again, a very nineties thing of like, you know, finding your passion in your work and the idea that like Paxton's character has this sort of like preternatural understanding of storms and has this group of people around him who are all there because they're like, they're passionate about it. Right. Like the, the twister is the juice for them. They say he feels it in his bones. You know, he has a telepathic, uh, connection to the storm. Uh, <laughs> Smelling I, dirt. Yeah. The thing I, I found, I, I mean, I think it's important that we say up front that Twister's a movie about weather um, that was released before this era when weather got political and when. Right. It, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> right. And totally. it became, uh, you know, the whole, I mean, it, it coincided with the release. I think this was the same year, 1996, the intergovernmental panel of climate change second assessment report hmm. that basically was warning about the implications and potential risks of the greenhouse emissions and the irreversible consequences that, that they would have. And this was something that hadn't been addressed on that level, at least not in like pop culture or narrative filmmaking yet. So right. 
that was an interesting thing to me. And yet we still, as a culture, had this surge of disaster films that just kind of followed this or, you know, predated and then followed this throughout the the rest of the decade because Twister was there, but then you had uh, Independence Day later that summer, uh, Volcano, Dante's Peak, Armageddon, yeah. and then of course our beloved um, Deep Impact, Team, Team Deep Impact, I will uh, clarify <laughs> always. Um, I, that, that, that is why one of the things when I, I think I first messaged Carly, I said, we're, kin- we're kindred spirits here because I, <laughs> as soon as I saw the, the username, I said, okay, okay, I'm on, I'm on, on her team here. It's a um, solid film. Yeah, yeah, I will maintain. Um, so, and then over 25 years later, I just feel like Twister remains as the, sort of the high watermark of that era for the disaster films that we got. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though it may have some of these, you know, these touchstones that we see, the wonky sort of paper thin science here and there. And it's, it's just the way that it was executed where, you know, they pulled a lot of that science and they still had um, the NSSL consulting on the film. Uh, But, you know, you have to make these narrative uh, liberties here and there. You have to take, uh, take some time to, you know, cut those here and there. I mean, I found the science of Dorothy to be pretty believable. Like, you know, you don't need to like get into it for me to follow along. Yeah. You float some shit up there. They've got sensors. Like it all makes sense. And the movies I kept thinking about when we were watching it this time were Titanic and contact. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of through lines with both. I think with contact, you have the obvious tie of like, my dad died when I was little. Science is going to bring him Science back. Science is going to yeah. bring him back. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm chasing something my whole life because of it. Um, yeah. I have like a sort of morbid fascination with with uh, with this thing that I'm trying to both conquer and also like you know give myself over to. Um, and then obviously like the romance, you know, connected to Titanic and and the the sort of pure spectacle of it all. Um, I was thinking a lot about um, how well both Cameron and DeBont in each of their films imbue the the spectacle and the thrill with like emotionality yeah. and like mm-hmm. um, and these beats that feel like really human uh, and like sort of ground you in like the thing that you're watching having stakes and like this film is slightly more like goofball and like a little bit like rom-com at times. Um, but there are some like really emotional moments, um, particularly this, the, uh, parts with Meg, her aunt. Yeah. There's a really great, very small scene, uh, between, um, the woman who plays, uh, Joe's aunt, and Joe, when they're at her aunt's house and she's taking a shower and Joe's aunt comes out and says, like, he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. And Helen Hunt sort of looks at her as like, what? And she's like, well, he was supposed to, you know, spend the rest of his life pining after you and die miserable and alone. And he didn't do that. <laughs> um, referring to Bill, uh, Bill Paxton's character. And Helen Hunt cries and it's like a, it's like 30 seconds, um, in the middle of like a really fun, raucous, uh, kind of like personality building, uh, sequence at the house. And I was like totally moved by it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it was a nice like reminder too that there is romance in this film. I was tweeting about this movie and I sort of jokingly said like, oh, this film is about like, uh, you know, how like thrill chasing is foreplay. And like, I was kidding, but like, it kind of is about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And about the the sort of bond building that happens between two people when you go through really traumatic, terrifying events. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. that's a very real thing. That's not cinematic. That, that's real life. You're, yeah. you're invested in the fact that Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt have this connection that can't be recreated with Jamie Gertz's character. Right. Um, right. Because they've been through too much together there. Yeah. And, and it is kind of romantic. Yeah. It really is. When you think about like them, you know, chasing storms together and, and literally weathering disaster together um, and coming out like on the other side, it's, it's believable that they would have some sort of like uncorruptible, incorruptible connection. Yeah. yeah. You, you get enough of the emotional stakes in all the characterization for it to continue to provide you with enough sustenance beyond just the spectacle. Yeah. I think that's really important. You have all of those things, the, the stuff with Joe, with Helen Hunt's character and like her dad stuff is compelling as well. You know, like it opens with, this F5 tornado, like pulling him and sucking him up with, with the door to their storm shelter. Um, and then that moment where you can see her kind of uh, the, the, the urgency and the, the sort of desperation with which he's trying to get this second Dorothy up into the air. And there's that moment in the rain with her and Bill where she, you realize that all this time she's kind of been personifying the storm. You yeah. know, she's like, you, you've never seen it before. You've never seen it miss this house and miss that house and then come after you. Yeah, that was that was an, a sort of an interesting detail that I loved about this movie always was like the personification of the storm and mm-hmm. how each of the leads had their own sort of connection. So obviously Bill has this sort of like, you know, like we said, the telepathic sort of like, I just feel it. I just, I know. And then the 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 thing that Joe has is sort of a lifelong vendetta against weather uh for killing right. her dad yeah <laughs> and and i love the her sort of origin story at the beginning of the movie where one thing i noted was it was important to show a uh, or important to start the film with the f5 but to not see it so yep. you 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 know that that's what's happening but you never actually get the full um look at it and that her dad is just i don't know this is uh you know her dad makes a mistake and he, i i you can pick apart the scene however you want, but the fact that she, you know, loses him and then is just spending her life sort of pursuing this obsession because she lost him and that it's going to fill some hole in her heart because she lost her dad through this experience. Um, the scene that Aaron brought up where they're sort of standing there arguing in the, the rain, I actually wondered if that was a glimpse into the reason why maybe they got divorced in the first place. Where because they yep. they never really address that, but you know you, he's he's talking to her. He's saying, "Hey, you know you you keep looking back at you know the loss of your father, and you're not looking at what you have right in front of you." Yep. And that whole scene, I was like, "I wonder if that is giving us a glimpse at that." I think you might be right about that. I think you're definitely right because he says, you know, like she says, "What are you talking about?" When he says, "What's right in front of you?" and he's like, "Me, Joe, like I'm I'm here," you know, and 
it's I mean, it's a moment that works on two fronts in terms of like the kind of emotional core of the story. Right. Which is I think it's a peek into the conflict that they've had for their entire relationship. And then I think it's also his recognition and fight like ad- admitting finally, like at the midpoint of the movie, I'm not still here right now just because I need you to sign a paper. <laughs> yeah. I'm here right now because like I want this back. Like I'm getting yeah. like immersed in this again and, and, you know, entrenched in this lifestyle and drawn in by you and like the, the, the chase. I, I, I need this again. And of yeah. course, Jamie Gertz's character hears all of this over the radio. Oh my God. While well, she's yeah. being slapped in the face by a storm. I know. And, you, and yeah. Carly was watching this and she was just like, was shaking her head and she's like, getting slapped by the storm and getting cucked at the same time. <laughs> they, got, they got her out here in a fucking storm. She's in a white, you know, beautiful cotton suit. And uh, she's yeah. just. Yeah. And she's. Yeah, she's having to like dismiss advances by Philip Seymour Hoffman the entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> he's 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 holding her hand the entire time. Um, <laughs> it was it was interesting to me that you know the the cliche that we normally see in this in in a movie like this would be, you know, we would see the man holding out on the divorce, and I feel like they kind of subverted that in this mm-hmm. movie with by having her be the one that wasn't signing the papers and. I don't know. I wanted to kind of get into the um, the His Girl Friday of it all with, with you two oh and God, see. Yes. It was it was the only other movie that we need to talk about. Obviously, we were talking about the disaster movies. Carly brought up a couple of good ones with Contact and Titanic, but uh, His Girl Friday is the one that immediately pops out. I mean, it it mm-hmm. is effectively an identical plot in terms right. of like you know the the, the way that it, it goes about <laughs> from from the get go. Yeah. And I think that it's part of the magic of why it works. Right. Like you've got this disaster movie that is taking on a classic screwball comedy narrative. Yeah. You it, need that. It kind of makes me wish that um, Anne Martin would have done more screenplays with, with Crichton. I don't know yeah. how long they were married for, but she was the one that brought to him the His Girl Friday angle because DeBont or whoever it was had come to Crichton. I think, no, no, it was Spielberg came to Crichton and said, we need to do this Twister movie. And he said, we need a different angle. And she said, do the screwball love triangle and just base it off of His Girl Friday. And I, I felt like it works like gangbusters because you have this world of storm chasing that is the foundation of this whole thing. But then there needed to be another conflict that was driving the dialogue in between these tornadoes because you're effectively just going from tornado to tornado through this right. film and you have this sort of um, video game boss logic mm-hmm. where, you know, the tornadoes get larger and larger. And I love that, you know, the filmmakers conveniently make them get sequentially larger as we go through the movie as if that would happen <laughs> in real life. Right. Um, but then we get this, this awesome dialogue in between and, DeBont said that was the thing that he sort of, you know, when they were when they were rewriting the script and going back and forth, and I think Joss Whedon was involved and a mm-hmm. few other people. Um, he said, we need to make this something where the dialogue's driving things, even when the action's going on in the in the background. And that's something that you can effectively see throughout his Girl Friday is it's just people talking over each other, you know, action happening as they're talking, all of that. Yeah, one of the things that's so magical about Friday is there's this like very intense political kind of like thriller going on in it 
<laughs> you know, there's like this this intense sort of thing with all of these different players and and you know like the the mayor of the town and an incarcerated man and the police malfeasance and all this shit happening while it's just this comedy about Cary Grant wanting to get back together with this girl like you know it's it it is something that like works on two fronts and I remember when I you know I, I actually admittedly have watched His Girl Friday for the very first time very recently like within the last like six months and I remember while watching it like I, I knew what to anticipate on the screwball front of this but that there was this other thing going on within it is the thing that elevates it to just like master level in terms of its craft and its screenplay. Twister, I don't think ever arrives at quite that level of greatness, but it does give it enough extra meat on the bone for it to be compelling. And I think the way that those stakes escalate is also important, right? Because otherwise you would get a Bill Paxton character who's just like, you know, immediately back into the fold you know he gets the taste for it again there's blood in the water and like his eyes go black and he's like let's go get a storm instead the first time that they confront a tornado with the dorothy device uh he's uh in pursuit because joe didn't sign the papers right and he realizes this and so he's like okay well now i gotta go hunt her down we can still catch her and slowly very transitionally and gradually do we get to the point where he sheds all that pretense and then is suddenly just back to storm chasing again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think a movie, a lesser movie would approach this without all the nuance of, you know, they're, they're coming back in and he's introducing Melissa to Joe and she's kind of bringing all of this unspoken, not quite judgment, but just she sees Melissa and she's like, Oh, she's not right for you. She has no idea how big of a lunatic you are. And <laughs> she you know, doesn't she, know that you're the extreme. Exactly. The, ex- the extreme. Although Joe is arguably the one that should have had that nickname all along. <laughs> 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 um, I love that Carly brought up sort of the, you know, the, the sort of like hot chemistry of Bill and Joe throughout this movie. Because, you know, I always pair this in speed because of the, the DeBont connection. But I remember you know, hearing you guys talk about speed and, and really, you know, turning the mirror on myself because speed will often get, uh, and I think I've been guilty of this before the unjustified praise of the speed, um, the chemistry between Bullock and Keanu and how, how it's really just, (laughs) it's really just too, it's just too hot people together. And in this movie, you have, you have this scene where, um, these two partners who, you know, are pulling off believable history together and yep. they're arguing and it's, it's those arguments where you feel like, are you guys going to fight or are you guys going to start making out like what's going on? They're like on the edge of it <laughs> at all yep. times. And there's a, there's a part where Bill has to like clip some kind of walkie talkie onto her, her, her waistline yep. and he mm-hmm. leans over and it's hotter than anything in speed. Uh, this sort of interaction between them. So I, I just have to you know, praise that because it's real, it's true chemistry here. I can't believe you did it. We built four of them. Does she work? Thought you'd want to be here for her first time out. Wouldn't be right if you weren't here. <laughs> this is going to be good. How sweet is that? <laughs> Bill's concept, man. 
<coughs> the extreme, man, it came from his brain. I had a hand in it. <laughs> wow, it is great. What is it? It's an instrument pack for studying tornadoes. First one in history. It's very exciting. Scientists have been studying tornadoes forever, but still nobody knows how a tornado works. We have no idea what is going on inside because nobody's ever been able to take scientific measurements from inside the funnel. That's what she's gonna do. How? We put her up inside a tornado. She opens... and releases hundreds of these sensors that measure all parts of the tornado simultaneously. You see, Melissa, it's like this. These sensors go up the funnel and radio back information about the internal structure, wind velocities, flow asymmetries. We could learn more in 30 seconds than I have in the past 30 years. Get a profile of a tornado for the first time. And what will that do? If we knew how a tornado really worked, we could design an advanced warning system. Aren't there already tornado warnings? Well, the civil They're not good enough. They're nowhere near good enough. Right now, it's three minutes. If we can get this new information, we can increase warning time to 15 minutes. Give people a chance to get to safety. At least that's what these guys are trying to do. I can't believe you actually did it. Well, we did it. <laughs> How do you get it in the tornado? Well, you got to get in front of the tornado and put it in the damage path and then get out again before it picks you up, too. It's a suck song. Oh. They have, like, all these different moments where, like, they're, like, running into each other or, like, he's, like, putting a seatbelt on her or they're grabbing for something at the same time and, like, you know, touching hands and you're like, okay, sure, whatever. Yeah. But that only works because the dialogue between them is so electric. Like they are as electric and kinetic and charged as the storm. And I also, the thing that I also find really believable about their connection is that there are people in your life who you are drawn to because they bring out parts of you that like you might be trying to suppress um and and like let's not say that like Melissa is like bad or like not good for for Bill but it's it's clear that he has like a drive and that there are things about him that are true expressions of who he is that he has tried to like move on from and like deny in order to get over Helen Hunt's character and then he's back with her and all of those things come back out again because it's who he really is and it's like who he right. wants to be. Right. Um, and I like that. That feels very human. That yeah. feels like really human and really like true to what like complicated, sometimes messy relationships are like yeah. in that you are often grappling with like not just another person um, that you love and are attracted to for all these reasons, but you're also grappling with things about yourself that this, this person illuminates in you. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's the reason why Bill had to be a little bit of a lovable asshole and why the Tom Hanks of it all wouldn't have worked. I mean, you can't put America's dad right at, at, the, at this point. He was still sort of um, 
what is this Forrest Gump uh, mm -hmm. into this role and have it work the way it does. Because if you look at the trajectory of Bill Paxton and sort of the aliens and near dark and predator two, and then um, right before this true lies, you need someone with a little bit of that. He's, he's not perfect, but I can fix him. Yeah. Sort of vibe. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, yes. totally. Um, we, we ladies love that. The ladies yeah. love it. <laughs> yeah. A certain type of lady loves, not all of them, but a lot, of, all them. of, them. A lot of them love the kind of like injured guy sort of thing. I'm like, you're broken. Let's fucking hang out. I yeah. can, I can attest to this. Uh, <laughs> I, I do find it interesting just on your point really quickly, Jackson, that, you know, Tom Hanks, I guess, was the person who kind of ultimately walked on it because he said he didn't really want to do an action movie. But this is the same year that Hanks does You've Got Mail. Right. And yeah. so, like, he's done rom-coms before, but he's always been kind of like the sweet, like, genial kind of guy, right? Like, he's like maybe a little dopey sometimes or like, you know, he's kind of like quasi successful and like looking for love and sort of he's, he's more of a puppy. In You've Got Mail, he takes on uh, some of those kind of same little jagged corners and, and you know, kind of weird ripples that Bill Paxton's character has in Twister, where he is the asshole. He's like the corporate, I mean, Bill Paxton's not, but he, you know, he, he plays this like corporate scumbag guy who's trying to like, you know, destroy a small like mom and pop bookstore yeah. um, and gets to kind of flex a little bit of that, like, I don't know, kind of prickly muscle. He's great in that role. Too. He is really good. At yeah. That. Yeah. And I, I, I think here, I mean, Pax, Paxton's the one that I, I think if you had someone that was bigger, that could have fulfilled the, the action side of it. I don't know. I just, I'm glad that they took a chance on Paxton to do that. And I, <laughs> I love, you know, going back to the sort of the, the romance, romance side of it. Um, we, we hear about their meet cute moment at one point in the movie where, Joe was on the side of the road filming the tornado and then Bill just shows up butt naked and he's drunk and throws a, this bottle into the, the, the storm and just like yells at the storm. And his, you know, you look at this and you're like, oh yeah, she was, she was definitely like, that's my guy. That's who I need on my team. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's just like, wait, she was just like, did she have some issues that like drew her to just guys making poor decisions in the face of tornadoes? I, I don't know. But, Anyway. Yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> ladies do that. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> um, he also was without apparel. So. He, he wasn't naked. He was without apparel, right, as Todd Field says. I'm sure right. he looked great. Um, I feel right. like we should talk about the supporting cast. That's exactly yes. where I wanted to go. Yeah. Likewise. Uh, the, so the supporting cast in this film is obviously top notch. We've talked a little bit about Philip Seymour Hoffman as Dusty. Who is, I mean, even in such like a, a goofball, like meathead kind of a role, proving himself to be a formidable performer, like one of one of our greatest, uh, you know, ever like actors for for the screen. Mm -hmm. um, Alan Ruck is here. Todd Field, Carrie Ells as as the villain, of course. Our our guy Jonas, um, but but Jeremy Davies is here as well for a moment. Joey Slotnick, which is like carbon dating the film. In yes. every way. 100%. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, you can recognize him like in a heartbeat. And he's always like, oh, that guy. Like, you know what era we're in when we see this guy on screen. Yeah. And we, we can't overlook Sean Whalen, who for the uh, uh, the unofficiated, um, 
he's an important figure in the decade because he had the esteemed role of playing the caller in Michael Bay's Got Milk commercial, where he could not <laughs> enunciate the the name Aaron Burr. So that was yes. an important one for me. Very formative. Oh my god, memory unlocked for yeah. me. Uh, Zach Grenier uh, or Grenier, um, obviously Jamie Gertz. I wish we had seen more of her after this. Oh, yeah. She didn't have nearly as much of a career as I think she deserved. Um, obviously, Carrie Elways as who I feel like he was playing the heel for about a decade, yep. both before and after this. Just you know, just playing these like kind of sleazy, uh, you know, bad guys, whether he was deserving of it or not, even in Liar Liar, he was just kind of like the stepdad. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Two outliers in that, which are the films that made me fall in love with him. And mm-hmm. I had a major Carrie Elwes crush when I was a kid. Um, one of the few blonde men that like really did it for me. Um, him and Paul Newman, uh, <laughs> the princess bride, obviously, yeah. yep. and Robin Hood men in tights where he is playing a sort of dashing, but also, you know, uh, kind of like a little bit hammy, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. leading man. I mean, he, in both of those roles, he is very clearly like the, the new breed of like Errol Flynn, yep. right? Like he, I mean, he, he looks a lot like Errol Flynn, yep. right? Like this, the kind of like pencil mustache and everything, but he still mm-hmm. does a little bit of that, like kind of small eyed smolder where he's always kind of like smirking and like mm-hmm. barely opening his mouth when he's delivering his lines. Yeah. He yeah. does that in this a little bit. So he is like handsome and kind of dashing and charming while also just like, yeah, kind of being like a shit heel. Anytime yeah. he has to do an American accent, He's not. He's not playing a good guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have like day, what's it, Days of Thunder and Kiss the oh, Girls. Yeah. I mean, he he really went into it for a while. Yeah. Um, I mean, and then he's playing the villain. The thing about him playing the villain is like they're not bad. They're just badly motivated, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because totally. we talk about the corporate of it all and them not sh- sharing, I guess, the faith of faith and data type of thing. But I, I feel like with um, this movie. They needed to have some kind of human villain as well. Otherwise, it's too much of a turning the mirror on yourself. And were we not ready yet to say, hey, maybe we are the villains by not really paying attention to weather, paying attention to climate? Were we just not ready for that yet? (laughs) Yeah, and I think that they need some demarcation between people who are involved in this work, like we said, cynically versus like you know real weatherheads that like Mm -hmm. are out here chasing storms because like they want to save lives or like whatever right like the thing that they keep coming back to um to sort of like remind us of the the humanity of their mission is like oh we could get people like a couple extra minutes of warning and Mm -hmm. and we could save lives um and so we're supposed to have like that juxtaposition between Helen Hunt's crew and Carrie's crew so that like we know, okay, well, like these guys are at least in it for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just back on Philip Seymour Hoffman for a second, like his dialogue is so distinct from everyone else's mm, yes. in this in this movie. Like <laughs> I made the comment when we were watching that he's got like a kind of like Polly Shore vibe in this film, yeah. which like I never really made the connection to, but it was when they were like at 
the aunt's house and they were all eating and he's like talking about Carrie's character like ruining the day. Yeah. Ruage. Imminent ruage. Imminent ruage. And he says it like three times the way that like Polly Shore does. Yeah. Um, And he's doing a lot of like tubular and like he's like kind of like that guy where he's like the grindage <laughs> yeah like, well you know he's always yeah. stoked five years later this is jack black yeah, yeah probably yeah, yeah. True. yeah very true. true yeah but but i mean i love that philip seymour hoffman got this like gave us this before mm-hmm. he really got into the rest of his career because he never really went back to this in this way but i love that we got to see him in a role like this i mean only like less than a year before boogie nights Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. yeah, they he when he gets to do this kind of like minor role in like a slightly more commercial film, the only other one I can really think of that comes to mind immediately is his turn in Along Came Polly. Oh my god. With Ben god. Stiller and Jennifer Aniston. And and yes. he does the same kind of like like uh slobby kind of like wisecracking guy who, you know, yeah. talks shit <laughs> and is kind of broy and like make it rain. Really have, yeah, it doesn't have a filter on him, you know, <laughs> like yeah. that kind of, he, that's, you know, he talks about sharding in that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm now thinking of him in Happiness, um, yeah. <laughs> which is like a totally different, different film. Um, he's like this sort of degenerate, like horny, like outcast. And I feel like when he's in a role where he is like, kind of like an outlier like that or just like not not you know your perfect shiny like mainstream like good guy he's always like so good um and he manages to bring a level of like humanity to those characters that like i don't think other people could do as patently yeah yeah humanity is a great word for it because i feel like the chemistry of that scene when they're at Aunt Meg's house and they're all around mm-hmm. and kind of like going back and forth, you see this tribe. It's a community of sort of oddball weather nuts who've somehow found each other. They all share this passion, as, as Aaron talked about earlier, uh, for storm chasing. And it would be easy to make a, a forgettable version of this disaster movie, the big spectacle, effects and everything, but leave out these scenes where you really get the, the texture and the character and you learn more about, you know, the leads through their supporting cast. I mean, I, I think to have um, our Cary Grant and our Rosalind Russell surrounded by these guys who are talking about them, that's the thing. Um, there's a lot of characters describing other characters in this movie. And that's, yeah. the, that's the cheat code that's used for development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's done really efficiently in the film, too. It is. I mean, and that's, you know, along with Jamie Gertz being there for those elements uh, of the romance plot line, she's also wonderful as, you know, kind of the the audience surrogate, mm-hmm. too. Yep. You know, like, it, yep. I, I love that scene at Aunt Meg's house when they're all, you know, kind of enjoying their steak and eggs. And it, it is, like, the finest character moment. It's, like, awesome hangout stuff. The kind of scene that Carly and I were talking about when we were watching this, that doesn't really get to breathe a lot in modern movie making and like content because of how sort of superfluous it is. But when you realize the necessity of it 
as like the reprieve from the action of the rest of the film and also the, all the character building that's happening. It's like, these are the kind of essential things that like you really need here. Mm-hmm. And when they're talking about, you know, the Fujita scale, you get those brilliant moments where she's, you know, asking about like, what's the difference between these? What's in F3, F4, like what's in F5 like? And yeah, you know, they get to say the no. finger of God. No, like, and that line sends chills down my spine. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and then Jamie Gertz says, has every, anyone of you ever seen an F5? And they just kind of all get silent and, and Bill just looks up because he knows it's, it's Joe. She's the only one. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Dude, he's going to rue the day. He's going to rue the day he came up against the extreme, baby. Yeah. Amen, man. Bill, I'm talking imminent ruage. <laughs> imminent ruage. Uh, I was just wondering why, why do you call Billy the extreme? Because Billy is the extreme. <laughs> Bill's the most out of control son of a bitch in the game. Uh, no, I think I came in second. I've seen the extreme in high gear. You guys got to get some new stories. No, so. I'm going to go clean up. So, uh, we get this one near Dalton, right? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> We're way too close, and Joe's got the vid on it. She's filming it, right? And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this shitty-looking green valiant comes pulling up right in the way. She starts, she starts yelling, and this, this loser stumbles out of the car. He's got, like, a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand. He's naked. Whoa. He is butt naked. Naked. Not naked. <laughs> I was not naked. <laughs> He's without the peril. <laughs> Half naked. Naked. So, so Joe's yelling at him to get out of the way, right? <laughs> so, uh... He just, he strolls up to the twister and he says, have a drink. And he chucks the bottle into the twister and it never hits the ground. Twister caught it and sucked it right up. Honey, this is a tissue of lies. See, there was another Bill, an evil Bill, and I killed him. From the the woman's perspective, Carly, is Bill the worst fiance ever? (laughs) Great question. Let me remove my sort of like cinematic, <laughs> uh, cinematic eye because I'm like, oh yeah, of course he and Helen Hunt need to be need to be. They together. need to be together, right? Um, yeah. I don't know that he's the worst fiance ever, but I can relate to him in the sense that I have gotten into relationships with people when I was trying to like outrun something um and like and like move past heartbreak and and maybe sort of like transform myself in a way by being with a certain type of person um I can relate to that I don't think that's healthy or good um like I I regret doing that yeah. uh, in my life but um but it's human yeah, I mean, he's not great. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, not, he's not like great. from a from a fiance perspective, she's like they're getting they're about to get married. Yeah. They're she, going out there to sign divorce papers, and she then she seems like a nice enough girl. She's <laughs> like you know she's successful in her practice, and she's you know she's beautiful and well put together yeah. and everything. But I, I do like that they have the moment like when they break up, like it's not like her in hysterics. Yeah. You know, no. that she's like very calm about the whole thing and that she's kind of, you know, resolved to like leave him. And 
some of it absolves Bill Paxton for sure, you know, and like makes yeah. it like, oh, this is easier to kind of like swallow from the audience perspective. But some of it feels like very informed by their relationship where she's like, I'm not not all that angry about this right now. Like, you know, what is what does that tell me about this? Like, I I feel like we both kind of had this inkling, had this idea that this wasn't really going to going to work. Well, and it's clear that she knew a like a very surface level version of bill right and yeah. like that i think is um another reason why she probably isn't like super upset where she's just like oh you're not actually someone i want to marry now that i know who you are yeah <laughs> you yeah. know i i actually feel like her character doesn't make me as upset as I know, or I've, I've heard it makes some people because I mean, the truth is like, so she's going on this trip with bill to go get the, the papers signed and she's expressed, Oh no, I want to, I want to see what it's like. I want to get a little bit of glimpse into your past. And even yeah. through all of these different things where she's, you know, she's put along with dusty in his truck. And then she has a, a truck land right in front of her and all these moments along the, this whole experience that sort of like traumatized her and kind of push her closer and closer to the brink. She has a pretty damn good attitude about the whole thing. Oh my God. Yeah. I was thinking that the entire time <laughs> I was like, she's like so game and yeah. like in the rain with a fucking like <laughs> flamingo umbrella that's yeah. like half broken, like water slapping her face while like, yeah. you know, dusty is groping her and she's just like, okay, I guess I'm here. This is what yeah. I was telling Carly. I'm like, she's just trying to take an interest in like the things that are important to her fiance at the beginning of this. Like, I will say yeah. though, like it's a pretty like major aspect of his life. And for her to be like, when you said you were a storm chaser, I assumed it was a <laughs> metaphor. Yes. I was like, then what did you guys talk about? Yeah, like- not that. Well, and again, like that's probably part of what, you know, steals her resolve to leave is like you've you've hid so much of this for me, like the version of you that I've gotten uh, completely papers over what yeah. this was. I know. I'm being pedantic. I'm just trying to imagine a conversation wherein he tells her that he is a storm chaser. No, totally. And she's like, and, and that he... She does, and then she doesn't inquire further. Yeah. Or that they're like not already talking about the fact that he literally was. Right? I, li- I like to imagine that like they were listening to the Fleetwood Mac song Storms, where Stevie <laughs> says that she's always been a storm, and that Bill like uses that opportunity to be like, I was a storm chaser once. Yeah. And her being like, Oh, I understand what you mean. Yeah, yeah. like running like, after girls like Stevie. He's so deep. He's so deep. So deep. He's so deep. <laughs> no, he just like was obsessed with like rain. With with actual storms. <laughs> yeah. And and just to go back to that scene that you were mentioning, Aaron, the um the end when they break up and they're at the the drive in. I feel like that was her best scene in the whole movie because when she's like sitting there in the room playing with her ring and she sort of figured it all out. I just feel like when she comes back to Bill and tells him she's going to leave, it's sort of, there's so much dignity in that moment. And she kind of gives you permission to forgive Bill as well. Mm -hmm. Like Like she says, I know my way home. And that was like the, that just summed it all up for me. I felt like that really... Um, gave her character a nice send off and yeah. and then just allowed us to move on into the last act of the movie. Totally. Yeah. And a really nice reference point to Wizard of Oz too. Yeah. 
in that mm. line. Yep. Yeah. I didn't think about that. That's great. Yeah. Well done. That is in Wizard of Oz. That one yeah. is mm-hmm. nicely done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it's funny because, you know, like we said, she's the, the audience surrogate and the one that all the exposition has to come back to. And that was something that DeBont was really fighting against. There was an interesting quote I read where he basically said it was driving him crazy and the producers were insisting on more and more exposition coming back to her character. And he felt like it was sort of irrelevant and he wanted to just show, 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 not tell, tell, tell. But there's so much science in it that he said, you know, that was the compromise he had to make. There's a good balance. Yeah. There, I mean, I don't think they do a ton of exposition. No, they don't. And a lot of it, you know, like in Speed, is delivered to us while they are in motion in the midst of the the twisters and, you know, kind of like the chaos that's surrounding them. A lot of this happens. I, I think about like the last big kind of, I'll call it a set piece. It's not really a set piece. The last, you know, kind of climactic scene which is really like twofold, right? It's it's the first, it's Dorothy three failing and then them having to uh, avoid like an exploding tanker and then dodge a bunch of uh, tractors and then ultimately drive through a house, which is one of the coolest fucking things in the movie when they're like <laughs> taking a, a, a big like, you know, F-350 or whatever it is through like a, a practical house set. That is an yeah. incredible Wizard of Oz reference. By the way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, And then, of course, you know, it's it's split down the middle with Jonas's death, um, which elevates the stakes for the final portion of it, which is them finally successfully launching Dorothy four into the tornado. Mm -hmm. And then the celebration cut short by the fact that the tornado shifts its direction and comes after them. Uh, Awesome effects in that sequence as well things getting blown apart some of the practical effects work like the the fence posts that are like clearly like on hydraulics that are like Mm -hmm. almost like serpentine and snaking around it escalates well and uh ultimately just reaches that kind of like cacophony and then a beautiful conclusion with them making out a you know tied to a, a 30 30 foot deep pipe making out in the wreckage in front of a bunch of people the same way Gawkin. speed ends. Yeah. A- after <laughs> after finally getting sort of the, I don't know, the fulfillment of Joe's obsession, finally getting like face-to-face with the F5 finally, which is what had to happen. And I, I feel like, I don't know if Carly said this online or not, but if it was something where this moment where they're both tied to the pipe and they're being pulled up and kind of vertical and it just sort of like this weird eroticism in that moment of like face to face with the most um, near death experience either of them has ever had next mm-hmm. to her seeing her dad die. Yes. And they're both like, I mean, we don't, I don't want to like over rotate on, on the eroticism that is proximate in like, or I should say, I don't want to over rotate on the way that danger can be erotic. It's something Mm -hmm. that, you know, someone like Cronenberg has uh, explored far better than I ever will. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the sort of like violence of, um, of, of danger and, and, you know, 
being in life-threatening situations like a car crash or a tornado um, and the adrenaline and kind of like corporeality of that experience is not too far from the adrenaline and corporeality of like a sexual thrill. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there is an eroticism to that last sequence when Bill is like strapping her in and they're being strapped in together with this like harness um and he's like behind her like it's not a sexy moment but there is like a a sort of like sensorial like just kind of like bodily quality to the entire thing um that is both thrilling and terrifying but also like deeply connecting Mm -hmm. the way that like sex can be sometimes Yeah. And they're, you know, in the middle of a giant fucking hole. So. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The the other thing that I take away from that moment is there's always this. I mean, I think this is where the criticism often comes back to this movie of like, oh, you know, they their skin would have been like, you know, sanded off by whatever this either way. My point is that Jan de Bont likes to test his audience and this is something that he said in the past. One of my favorite quotes that uh, is actually from, I think, after Speed, he talked about Speed. And I like to equate this moment to the, the bus jump in Speed. Oh, yeah. Where essentially he said it's the laws of physics versus the laws of movie making. And the quote it basically goes like this. He says, that's the big dividing point in the movie. If you throw up your hands and say, well, that's just ridiculous. That wouldn't happen. Then you might as well walk out. We've lost you. But if you go, well, that's awesome, then we've got you. You're enjoying the ride and it's a movie. And that's essentially <laughs> where what I always come back to in this moment and then in speed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's preposterous. It's it's unbelievable. But you you granted a fair level of liberty to do that because of how intriguing it is, right? right. And, and within the sort of like anatomy and context of the film, it totally works. You buy it. Um, and and up to that point, you know, you've if you've approached in good faith, they've done enough, I think, to win you over and to make that stuff compelling. Yeah, yeah. What did uh, what did you guys think of the the effects and what um, ILM was able to pull off? I know there's sometimes like mixed chatter about it over the years, but I personally I feel like the effects are ex- are extremely uh have have aged pretty well there's a few moments where the seams are showing but i think overall i mean for something that's you know 25 years old plus is i mean yeah uh, mixed chatter is bullshit yeah <laughs> the effects yeah. are awesome yeah in it, this film i mean it, it looks great and i think it's just you know that that marriage of practical and digital that works during this era some of it, like you said, definitely seems are showing a little bit more than in something like a Jurassic Park, which I think is aged masterfully because it's it's masked and hidden. Like this one, a, a couple of moments where you're like, oh yeah, that is. I mean, these big tornadoes are obviously you know rendered with CGI, and and mm-hmm. we can tell, but the stakes still feel real. It feels you know lived in. Um, and then all those moments where you get like the the awesome set of the of Meg's house destroyed mm-hmm. like on hydraulics like slowly collapsing on them you know th- those things feel tactile and real and they do a good job of making everything else around it also feel like it is also real the hail yeah. 
Um, in in that early sequence when they're chasing one of the first uh twisters is like so incredible. Like it's actual ice. You can tell it's not like the weird like plastic snow that they use um yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Like it's like you can hear it, you can see it, it's breaking like hail would break. Um they do a really good job of like grounding a lot of the digital stuff with uh with really strong practical effects. And they're outside for a lot of it, right? Like they're not on a sound stage. They're like in a fucking cornfield. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, we're coming back to what DeBont said about this being a tactile production on location, everything. He was throwing stuff at the actors constantly, like the wind machines and the, you know, the jet engines and all the ice and stuff. I mean, it was, was real. And, um, you know, one of the scenes that really stands out to me when showcasing the effects well in this movie is the, the drive-in scene where you get them all there. And this is, yeah. um, right before Melissa is going to leave. And I love this transition that they have where they, they show the, uh, the shining is playing on the, the drive-in screen. Uh, this is actually something that Jan de Bont, I think has done in quite a few films, which is it's a Kubrick tribute. So in speed, he had, um, 2001 on the marquee on Hollywood Boulevard in the last scene. And then in this one, obviously you got, got the shining in there on the, the drive-in screen. Um, I love this moment of calm right before the tornado is going to, going to come where you see the, you know, the TV interference that Bill sees on the screen. And then Melissa is just sitting there and you see the breeze start to blow the, the drapes in the, the motel room. And it just feels like, yeah, jaws approaching in the water. Yes. And, and then one of my favorite shots that they pulled off of the tornado is when you see the, the drive-in screen playing the movie, and then there's like a, a lightning flash or something and it reveals the tornado and like this, the thickness of this storm behind it. Yeah. yeah. So that was, that was something that stood out to me. And then in addition, after that sort of the, the parallels between the storm ripping up the drive-in screen and Jack Nicholson axing through the door after Shelley Duvall. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. They they line up the scenes from The Shining like really well with the mm-hmm. actual destruction taking place. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, too, I think alongside the effects and, and just like the kind of smartness with which they're approaching it, a thing that we were talking about with the believability of the characters and the kind of like lived in reality of all of this within the film world, they do an excellent job of differentiating the storms. Like each of the the twisters has its own sort of like kind of personality to it. And you can, I mean, the the mark of this, I think, in terms of like the effectiveness is that we could readily discuss each one of these tornadoes sort of by like a name we give it and we would know what we're talking about. Like we mm-hmm. could talk about like the F1, we could talk about like the sisters, you know, or, or you know, the water spouts or whatever we want to call them, the F4, uh, and then finally like the ultimate, like, like the big F5 one, right? Like the, yeah. the big final story, like you, you know what we're talking about. And I think that that personification, I think that that willingness to like, you know, kind of break with the texture of reality a little bit and and do that sort of like boss level escalation really benefits the story overall. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, we see these disaster movies in the 90s where you would have multiple versions of them, obviously, like the volcano Dante's Peak thing. And that was possible with a lot of 
different sort of disasters and approaches. But the thing that Twister did was it, it took such a specific story as in tornadoes in tornado alley and sort of sucked all the air out of that approach <laughs> that I feel like there was yeah. no way anyone else could could come about it and do it the same way and, and be successful. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I, I think that that's maybe a good way to segue into one of the last things I, w- I want to talk about with this, which is uh, that next year we do have uh, a sequel to this film hitting theaters called Twisters, um, directed by Lee Isaac Chung, who directed Minari um, and got a, a lot of awards recognition and uh, critical kind of hullabaloo around that uh, a few years back. Um, the cast seems solid. It's got some good names in it that I like. You've got Glenn Powell from Top Gun Maverick in there. Um, Daisy Edgar Jones, who's on Normal People and a couple other movies right now that are pretty big, who I, I like just fine. Brandon Perea mm-hmm. from Nope is going to be here as well. I really enjoy him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you've got like decent people in here. Um, but I still, I, I'm completely, you know, I, I have my apprehensions around these kinds of things all the time. And I wonder if like that magic is still there and that if you can really, you can really get the lightning to strike twice with this kind of thing. Um, wh- one of my big things I think is that despite all those people being people I like, it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like it's the same kind of sauce that we've got in this movie where they feel believable and real as like the storm chasers, you know, like these yeah. are all just like pretty like late twenties, early thirties people who are, you know, good faces. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, it's a, it's a bigger issue that I have with just like a lot of movies in general. Now I've, I've said this now, like probably five times on the show, but the fact that like everybody in a movie, whether they're supposed to be like, you know, like the, the crooked cop or like the asshole husband, or, you know, like the, the gun smuggler who you like meet at like the CD bar or whatever, they all just look like Burberry models. Like they all just, they look like they would belong in like a magazine print. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually, the the bigger sort of disappointment for me is learning that you know a couple of years ago Helen Hunt and yes. David Diggs and uh, Rafael Casal had put together this this new script for a sequel, which sounded and, awesome. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I felt like you know you had the the possibility of having a film that would comment on one of the glaring omissions of the original, which was how do disasters like this impa- impact vulnerable populations in mm-hmm. society and sort of like a post Katrina world. And yeah. we, you know, could we get a cast of, you know, actors of color and, you know, which I, I think they're maybe trying to do a little bit. I don't know. It's like you said, it's a lot of like good looking people, but are they really doing it the way that like she, she even name checked that. I mean, Helen Hunt said she was really disappointed because they wanted to have it, you know, she said black and Brown storm chasers, you know, doing this on like, you know, either a college campus or, you know, something to that effect. And that yeah. you'd have Frank Marshall involved and all mm-hmm. these things, elements from the original. And then having Helen Hunt come back would be, uh, I think, uh, essential for me. So the fact that they, uh, apparently they've killed off her character for this, this sequel, which rude, but um, I don't know. Yeah. Which is also a bummer because I guess one of the characters, it may be Daisy um, is supposedly going to be playing like, the the young Harding, like the Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt's kid, mm-hmm. which I don't think is like a necessary connective tissue. I don't think it always needs to be like I don't like that. a child, you know, that like follows in the parents' footsteps. I think that's kind of corny. I, I really yeah. liked 
the idea that they were talking about with uh, David Diggs and Rafael Casal and that it was like, you know, like uh, students at like, you know, an HBCU or something who were all storm chasers and yeah. that like, you know, Joe Harding was was there and, and you know, kind of like their their mentor and all of that. I, I get the sense that some of this stuff is going to find its way in, like we mentioned with Twister, how it's, you know, kind of one of the last vestiges of like a weather movie or a disaster film that doesn't have to uh, implicate like climate disaster or, or human connection and culpability within that. I get the sense that a lot of this is going to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, you'll, you'll probably find that there's going to be like multiple human villains. The thing that we kind of mentioned here that this, this movie sort of lacks, which is like, we'll have uh, like a climate denial uh, I don't even know, like Dean at the the university or something who like wants to cut funding and cut their grants so that they can't research anymore. Or, you know, you'll, you'll have something like that here. Yeah. And I, you know, one of the things that over the past year or so I kind of changed my attitude on was originally I heard about the rumors over the years of another twister and was like, no, we don't need to do a legacy sequel or, or something like that. But then I was, you know, I definitely think that Maverick sort of changed my attitude towards something being able to done, be done successfully mm-hmm. in that capacity if you have the mm-hmm. right people attached to it. Um, Joseph Kaczynski was actually even attached to this at one point. Right. And uh, if you if you were able to shepherd it the right way, it's possible. I don't know if that's going to be the case with this, but um, yeah. Yeah. You know, like uh, I don't think it's impossible. I, I do, however, think that Twister as a film is one that checks all the boxes that covers all the bases in a way that is unexpected because of sort of a, a, a litany of different kind of pieces that, that seem at first unrelated, seem like they may not work together and just kind of gel magnificently. So, you know, will the magic be there? Who knows? Will it be something worth watching and still relatively entertaining? Possibly. I will, I will hold out hope. I think it's got some, some good people involved in it. Um, Spielberg seems to like it, although, you know, he seems to like a lot of things these days. I I know that he's, you know, wholly endorsed dial of destiny and we don't know how that one's going to be. Um, doesn't sound great coming out of con, but we'll see, I guess is where I'll ultimately land on it. We will see. Um, but it, but it isn't, it isn't Twister 1996, and uh, no. and I think it's a very special kind of blockbuster. I think it's uh, a wonderful film to get the chance to talk about, and I'm so thankful to you, Jackson Boren, for uh, joining us today to talk about it with us. Absolutely, thank you. I, you know, like I said earlier, um, it's an honor to be on to talk with you guys. I have a tremendous amount of respect for what you guys are doing with the show. You know, the pleasure is all mine for you guys to have me on here. This was great. Where can, uh, where can people find you on twitter.com and around the internet? Yeah. So, um, I'm on Twitter at Jackson Boren. Um, I'm just on there usually, um, sharing my thoughts and takes on, you know, different movies. I, I podcast here and there usually, uh, as a guest on awesome shows like, like this. Um, so I'll be on a, a few more shows later this summer. Um, I'll, I'll share those links as I get them and, uh, love connecting with others like yourself. So this is great. From our end of things, you can follow along uh, at Hit Factory Pod. You can subscribe to the show. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Tell your friends. We could always use more of you there. Uh, we'll give a shout out to our overlords. Their names are Linda, Jesse K, Jared Murray, Omar. Thank you for your continued support. 
and we will catch you all the next time. Take care, everyone.